When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. So we have a very special guest today who is doing great things. Her name is Allie Henney. She has a new book that is coming out this month, and it's I Won't Shut Up, which is an excellent name. Welcome, Allie. It's good to see you again. Yes, good to see you all again, too. And Allie, you're our first recurring guest that we've had on the show. We we talked to you, I think it was two years ago now. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, So you carry that honor forward from this moment. I know. (laughs) She's awesome. Yeah. So tell us again for listeners who are meeting you for the first time through this episode, who is Allie Henney? Yeah. So I am, let's see, a social media person. I have a social media page, a few social media pages, I guess, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I'm a theologian, a minister, a writer, speaker, all that kind of stuff. Vice President of the Witness, the Black Christian Collective. Let's see. Yeah. So that's me. That's me. That is awesome. Well, you have this book with this amazing name and we want to hear more about it. It's coming out on June 27th, correct? June 20th. June 20th. Okay. And you people can go on the website and pre-order. And you, oh, you know what? I think I see that your virtual launch party and Q&A is going to be on June 27th. So that's where I, I mixed up the dates. But tell us about the book, I Won't Shut Up. Yeah, so it's just, it's part, uh, it's part memoir and part, I guess, maybe what you would call maybe self-help, part social justice issue thing. And it's just me telling my story of growing up in rural Missouri and then going to college, being a young adult in um, a predominantly white city in Southwest Missouri, and then just some of my progression of uh, finding my voice to speak out against racial injustice. Tell us a little bit about what finding your voice has been like to the backdrop of in a black woman body, to the backdrop of colonized whiteness. And the political climate that we live in, your generation, what generation are you? Are you a millennial? I'm a millennial. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Tell all those things. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what all that looks like and some of the things that you have shared in your book. Yeah. So let's see where to start. So I think that some of the framing of my story of growing up in rural Missouri in a predominantly white town that had a black community, a very small black community. The city that I grew up in, the town that I grew up in, was less than 20,000 people. 
And so a small town farming community and that's sort of the, the backdrop of my upbringing. And I bring that up because I think that that type of story is one that often isn't told because often whenever we think of black people, we think of like urban context, right? And so we think of black people who live in major cities, who are, who live in the inner city or who live in that urban type context. If we think about rural black people, it's usually like rural Southern black people, which is a little bit different. It's a little bit of a different, a little bit of a different vibe, a little bit of a different culture because of the culture of the South. But like, not often do we hear stories from people who are from like the rural Midwest. Like, it's like, so we don't hear a lot of, I don't feel like that, that I ever really heard or see a lot of stories of people who grew up in small town America who are black. Because even, you know, we might hear people, we might hear stories of people in the suburbs and there's some overlap to those stories, right? So there's some overlap of like the suburban black person whose family, they might be first or second generation living in the suburbs because their family fled from the hood and moved to the suburbs and stuff. And so there's like similar experiences. But my experience growing up in a small rural town, I grew up with the vestiges of segregation, the the vestiges of Jim Crow, the vestiges of even enslavement. And so a lot of the people who live, a lot of the black folks who live where I grew up, who live in that particular region of Western Missouri, a lot of us are descended from people who were enslaved in that region. If not the Mm. exact town that we were in, that same, that very same region, you know, within with people who were enslaved, you know, within like a 50 mile radius, 70 mile, 75, 100 mile radius of that. And wow. so that's a different experience. Yeah. That's a much different experience. And then whenever you start talking, throwing in like the whiteness of it all. So often because the South is so segregated and I've and this exists even in parts of Missouri where I'm from, but I am not from one of these types of towns, but the South is so segregated that often rural black people, you're living in towns that are segregation towns, essentially, where all the black people live here and then all the white people live in a town next to that. So like, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the white town in Missouri. So so this is like a reality in Missouri where there's Haiti, where all in the boot heel of Missouri, where all of the black people live. And then I cannot remember the town that's next, that's like right next door to Haiti. It might be Sykeston, it might be Dexter. And I'm sure people from the Boot Heel are like, girl, you aren't anywhere close regionally. But I, but like there's several towns like in the Boot Heel, the Missouri, but I'm not from the Boot Heel. I'm from the Kansas City, from the Kansas City area. And so we didn't really have that reality of being segregated from white people in our own little towns that were struggling or whatever. We were just right there in with the same people in with the descendants of the people who enslaved us. And so living and growing in that sort of context, and you're not just a minority, but you're what I call in the book, like a super minority. And that's where you're, there's more than 80% white there. And so like where I grew up, it was between 95 and 97% white. 
during the time that I lived there and it hasn't and it hasn't changed very much since then. So you're talking about being outnumbered in some cases, you know, 50 to 1, 75 to 1, you know, 100 to 1. And there mm-hmm. might be 100 black people in your town or 200 black people or, you know, 300 black people there. But there's that many more white people. And so the experience of that is 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 so much different. Because you and for me and my family, we had a strong cultural identity, a strong black identity. And so it was kind of like these two different worlds that I navigated where I had the world of my family, of the black community that we sort of moved in and through the church community that we were part of. And then I would go out away from my home or away from my grandma's house, away from the part of town where most of the black people live and go away from that and be in a world that exists parallel to that world, exists within that world. But you're navigating white people and being around white people and having to learn how to do that and how you're having to learn how to do that. And so the first part of my book is is really dealing with that reality. And then I went to college in Southwest Missouri. I went to college in Springfield, Missouri, which is uh, Missouri State University, not the University of Missouri, which is the Tigers. No, that's right. not that wasn't my school. Mm-hmm. The, that's Mizzou. I went to Missouri State, go Bears. That's my alma mater. And so Springfield, again, it's a city. It's wherever I moved there in 2004, it was like 150,000. I think now it's like 175 or something, 160, 175,000 or something like that. But still, whenever I first moved to Springfield, Springfield was like greater than 90% white. So Mm -hmm. like I'm in college and like on campus, whenever I lived on campus, I only lived on campus. I only lived on campus for a year and then I moved off campus. But there would be diversity on campus because we had a lot of international students, a lot of students, a lot of black students and stuff that would come in from Kansas City and St. Louis. But in like the city itself, off campus, outside of that college context, and once I graduated and I lived there several years after, for several years after I graduated and then moved away and then moved back, that was a whole completely different experience or whole like experience that was very similar to the experience I had growing up. But like where, again, you're just, there, there are times where when I would go and like the only black face that I would see would be my own wherever I looked in the mirror. (laughs) And so. And some of that is because, you know, I I ended up attending a white church and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, that's kind of the scenic route. But just sort of my my life and experience of then moving. I moved to Virginia, lived outside Washington, D.C. for a while. And so that was a completely different experience because even though where I lived was still predominantly white, there was a lot more diversity. And so and I felt that diversity, like even where I lived, I felt in my neighborhood, I felt that diversity that I had never, ever experienced before in my entire life. And then I moved back, then I moved back home and moved back to Springfield. And it was like, and it was like culture shock. And so all these things are happening within the backdrop of Obama being elected president. So, you know, Obama was elected president right after I graduated college. So like I graduated college in 2008. And so I graduated high school in 2004 graduated college in 2008 and he was president. And then I was in my late 20s whenever Ferguson happened, had just had my first child whenever Ferguson happened. So there's all these kind of like linchpin kind of kind of touchstone, not linchpin, touchstone. That's the word I'm looking for. 
kind of moments in my generation as kind of a, a geriatric millennial, I guess is what is what I am since I'm one of the one of the older <laughs> ones of that. I, I call it like well, I, I don't call it. People call us geriatric millennials. Some people are like, oh, <laughs> And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, elder millennial, but I'm just going to go ahead and embrace the ger- Okay, fine. We're geriatric. Like at some point we're going to be geriatric. So I just kind of say geriatric ironically because it's weird. To, like it's like I'm like 38, like I'm going to be 38. Like how's that geriatric? But anyway, right. so yeah. So it's just, so then finding my voice and kind of learning how, like, like recognizing, because I experience racism, of course, because that's just. Like, of course, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. grew up, I grew up in a town that was greater than 90% white and I went to college in a city that was greater than 90% white and has a storied history of racism. So, of course, I experienced racism. And so I felt that racism was just something that like I had to kind of I felt like that racism, I, I thought that racism was a problem that I had to manage wow. because I knew that white people weren't going to manage it. Like, like, cause I, cause I could see evidence of that every day that like white people, yeah. they weren't going to handle their stuff. Right. They were going to be, they were going to be racist. And so I thought that racism was something that I had to manage. So I had to make sure that I wasn't doing anything that would somehow invite people to be racist against me. And it wasn't like in this you know, kind of respectability politic kind of way. It was just in a sort of, I know like I'm trying to protect you from your worst impulses. So I'm not going to eat fried chicken at the picnic because I know that if I do, it's going to invite your worst impulse to make a joke about it. And so I'm not going to. And so I'm not going to do that. And so anyway, so I but then I realized that there got to be a point when it was like Michael Brown's body is laying on the ground. Trayvon Martin's body is laying on the ground. All these bodies are laying on the ground and people are being racist about it. And so there gets to be a point whenever you're just like. I can't manage this for you and it's not my job to manage this for you. I actually need to tell you what the problem is because you don't, because you know, they didn't know what the problem was. Right. And there's more, way more to that, but the book sort of kind of chronicles that, that aspect of me switching from thinking that, cause I mean, it's like, I, it's like, you know, I knew white people were racist. I, I wasn't trying to change or contort myself. I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to change or contort myself in terms of like, I'm trying to be white. I knew who I was and I also knew who they were. And so it was like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to deflect what's happening. And so then kind of within that, you lose aspects of your, of yourself and whatever. And so my book kind of talks just about that journey and about the journey then to becoming a justice advocate and being outspoken, where it's like, I always knew that this stuff was wrong, but I always knew it was wrong, but like, I didn't think that I could do anything about it. And so then I realized that I could do something about it. And so I did. This is so powerful. Just listening to you. There are so many thoughts that are going through my head. One thing about Allie that, and I know you somewhat personally, just from some of our interactions on social media and specifically a group that we're both a part of, a couple of groups that we're both a part of Mm -hmm. on social media and your work with the witness, you are a master storyteller. Like, I feel like God gives us people that can really like paint the picture of our times. And as you were talking about, you know, the unique experience of growing up in the South and in the Midwest, and sometimes you have generations of white and black people that are growing up together on different sides of the spectrum, and that's a loaded word, but on different sides of the social spectrum, the socioeconomic spectrum, 
the racial spectrum, the racial ideal spectrum. I mean, you could have a grandmother that helped take care of, was a caretaker to her oppressor, the people who she mm-hmm. worked for that were oppressive mm-hmm. and racist, but then also helping having raised the children who would be the next generation of oppressors to her grandchildren. And that is really powerful. And as you were talking, mm-hmm. what I heard in my spirit was Zora Neale Hurston, who is one of my favorite writers. I feel like she is one of the most important writers of all time, but specifically our time and how she gave voice to the people in Florida, Evansville. And mm-hmm. when I say gave voice, I mean, she spoke, she made an important, she made a point of uplifting their voice in their vernacular. And I feel mm-hmm. like th- you're yeah. one of those voices. You are doing that for the Midwest in the area that you grew up in. And it's so powerful because there are people like we exist and we live and we don't have the capacity or the time to even connect those dots. And then there are people that God has given to connect those dots because he is telling their story. Mm. He's telling their story and his story through them. And I feel like you're a master storyteller, like you are a queen of words. And I love that. I've always loved and respected that about you. Even just listening to you now, there's so much in me that resonated as a child of the South, the Mid-South. I was like, she just gave voice to my experience in a way that I'm sure I've thought about, but never really articulated. And that's Mm -hmm. why this book is so important. That's why you don't need to shut up because people need to hear this because there's an awakening that happens when you hear you know, words string together in a way that you have never had to think about them or a way that you never thought about them. And there's so much power. There's so much power in you by not shutting up and putting these words together in such a profound and thought provoking way that stirs the spirit, like stirs people and awakens people. Mm -hmm. So I just want to appreciate you for that because that was very, very powerful as I'm sitting here listening to you. But I also want you and thank you because you answered so many questions that I was going to ask just by telling your story. Talk about the first time that you felt like you were silenced or that you were shut up. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, this is something that actually I talk about a bit in the book. So there's there's layers to it. Right. There's multiple layers to it. So the first layer sort of is just the family of origin type stuff. So growing up in a big, loud, extended family and everything. And I was one of the younger kids in the extended family. One of the younger, one of the younger grandkids, and there was like a little bit of a gap. And then there were some, then there were some more like grandkids and great grandkids that, that came in after me. Yeah. And so there's this aspect of being young and people not always taking you seriously because, because, you know, you're one of the, you're one of the babies yep. and that sort of stuff. So there's that aspect of it. There's that layer. Then there's also the layer. And this is something that I get into early in the book. So I was raised in an extended family for, but for those of you who don't know what an extended family is, because that's it's a, it's a very common family structure in African American, Black American culture, mm-hmm. where it's not just like your nuclear family, where you have where you have parents and then siblings. Right. Um, an extended family is, and it's not multi generational necessarily either. Where my, you might have like a grandparent and then a parent, and a parent, a son or daughter in law or a child in law, and then kids. 
it's the grandparent and then all the grandparents' kids and then all of the kids. And so it's so it's grandparent, kids, grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, big and small cousins or whatever. So I grew up. My grandma had seven children and then six of them lived to adulthood. And so I grew up and then, yeah, so then I guess I grew up with, because my, my uncle died whenever I was younger. So I grew up with four out of five, or I guess three, I can't remember the number even, because I could keep on not counting my mom. So, because it's like, because again, it's like, it's like aunties, like, whenever right. like who's my mom? Who's my mom? Right. Um, so I'm like, so I'm like, I'm not counting my mom with the number, but like, um, so my mom had two brothers and then I guess my mom had four sisters. And so I grew up with three out of the four sisters. And wow. then the fourth sister lived in a neighboring town. And so then she had kids who were older than me. So I grew up with just with all these cousins, all these whatever. So my grandma was like the matriarch and and solid rock of our family. Yeah. Well, she was a heavy smoker for many years. She smoked for 50 years. Wow. She had some health issues that then really came to a head whenever she was diagnosed with lung cancer. And so she had been having some health issues for a while um, that we were having to mitigate. But then she had to she had a stroke. And then right after the stroke, she was diagnosed with cancer. And so Mm. my early preteen years were dealing with that. We're dealing with first the stroke and then, oh, well, we're now we're having to do cancer treatment. Now we're having to do radiation. And so slowly watching my grandmother decline and so in her health Mm. decline. And so within that, then, because my grandmother was the glue of the family in a lot of ways, and you have that person, that main person who's sick, well, then yeah. everybody is just, and, and then my aunties, my, it's like your, it's like your mom, it's like her mom, and it's like my aunties, their mom, you yeah. know, my uncle's mother-in-law, that's right. like, a, that was like a mother. It's just, it's, you know, grandma, it's all these things. So there's just all these big feelings and emotions and everything else within that. And so within my grandma's illness, and I, and I talk about one specific occasion in the book, but just within that, there gave a lot of occasion for me, try, like wanting to be heard. Yeah. So, want, so being the youngest and kind of wanting to be heard, wanting to be whatever, but then also just wanting to be heard, experiencing all sorts of things that were very, 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 very difficult. And things that not a lot of kids were living yeah. through, you know, not a lot of kids were helping their grandparent up off yep. the ground because they had fallen. Not a lot of not a lot of grandkids were helping with helping to be caregivers yep. and stuff. And so but we were my cousins and I were. And so there was just a lot of things kind of within that that then caused me to feel silenced at times. But then the thing that whenever we start talking about racism and my voice in terms of just my voice in terms of who I am as a person, there's actually a chapter where I talk about how whenever I was in fifth grade, there was a group of boys who made a bet with me that I couldn't go like the whole week without talking. And so then you in the book, you get to read about some of what happens with that bet. And it doesn't go quite the way that you would think it would go. And it ends in, spoiler alert, racism. <laughs> um, and there's mu- there is much racism. Oh, yeah. And so in the, with this incident, it was an incident where I felt like I lost my voice, where it was the layers of misogynoir wearing braces and a bowl cut 
Mm. You know, telling me that I needed to shut up, telling me, you know, silencing me in some very, some very uncouth ways. We'll, we'll put it, we'll put it that way. And realizing that it's like, you know, it's not even just at home. It's not even just, it's also among my peers and it's in, it's in all these different places. And so that, that incident really kind of, I think, set me up for just feeling, feeling kind of bad about myself in a lot of ways and carrying some of this even into young adulthood and everything until I, again, had that moment right. where I found my voice and could and started speaking up for myself whenever I was experiencing yeah. injustice. Wow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think it's crazy to, as a white person, think about the experience. And I've had just slight experiences of being the only white person in a context. And, but it's just something I've like experienced on just a couple occasions. And to think of just years of what that would, that experience would be to look around and to just feel a sense of isolation that nobody else is even aware of. Because I think in most white contexts, mm-hmm. if you are, black and come into that space, most white people won't really notice what that must be like to go for you to be going through that and probably just won't even be aware that it's happening, that it's like part of your perceived story and world that is like big and felt, but for them is just kind of invisible. But Mm. in, in here, one of the quotes that I kind of highlighted or underlined, you say, you talk about how black people have the right to exist and take up at least as much space as everybody else. We shouldn't have to adjust ourselves beyond what is required for being compassionate, ethical people. We shouldn't have to censor, filter, and regulate ourselves while doing ordinary things. That kind of experience, I think, is just foreign to a lot of white people because we don't often have to. White people are a numerical majority in America, and Mm -hmm. most white people stay in spaces where they are in the majority, so they don't have the experience Mm -hmm. of what it would even feel like to be in a space where... You're not just allowed to think and say whatever you want and allowed to, it's almost like speaking a native language where you don't have to do the translation in your head as a white person. Yeah. And to realize, Yeah. and I say all this because I want the white audience to kind of think about and consider what it would be like to be in a space where you have to kind of run everything through a filter of how am I going to be perceived? How do I even thinking about you refusing chicken because you don't want at the parties or whatever you said the context was because you don't want to play on or step on racial stereotypes like that's most white people just get to pick what food they feel like like without having to run everything through all these filters and i just think of the exhaustion the mental energy that it would take to live in this against this backdrop of all these filters of I mean, along so many different dimensions, because it's also how you dress, it's your hair, it's like the ways that you talk, the words you use, it's all the decisions of how you live all have to run through these filters. And so I just empathize, I apologize that all that energy is necessary. 
But also, I, I just thank you for not shutting up. Like, you can't make people listen to you. You can't force them, and it's not your responsibility for them to listen to you. Mm-hmm. But what you can control is that you keep talking and contributing to the world and saying things of value. You, Ali, I just know from following you over the years, you have so, like, a thousand different jewels of wisdom and good things to give to people that people and white people might tune you out and then it's to their detriment because they will not get the good things that you are bringing into the world. And yet the fact that you won't shut up, the fact that you won't let that difficulty, that extra energy of running things through the Mm -hmm. filters, of continuing to endure in spaces that where it's just more social energy has to go into it than is fair because nobody else in that room is going to put that energy in. And yet you won't shut up. You endure in it and you continue to bring good things into the world. And there are many white people who follow you on various channels and who do get to benefit from that. But also it's not on you to make that happen. What you do is you keep talking and you keep loving and being a compassionate, ethical person and leading in how to do that. And so thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. And you know, I was thinking about you amplifying your own voice and finding those listeners finding you. So not only are you not shutting up, but your gifts, you know, there's room that have been made for your gifts and your voice. And I want you to talk about like the people, you know, because you do have following on social media, following on TikTok on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Like I love to listen to what or read what, what is Allie saying about this? You're becoming one of those people that is like, okay, so what does she say about this? Because, you know, there are those people that kind of can, not that you desire to speak for people. I mean, you're, you're speaking for yourself, Mm -hmm. but you're in you speaking for yourself. You most certainly are speaking for others who have the shared experience, but let's talk about like, you won't shut up. And there are people who gravitate towards you to hear from you, whether sometimes they're antagonizers or, but mostly those who, yeah. you know, want to hear you because they want to listen. They want to learn. They want someone to identify with. They, your words resonate. Talk about that side of it. You're not shutting up in those who hear you. And maybe some of the stories of people that have shared with you how you, your voice impacts them. Yeah, well, you know, I never set out to like create a platform or to have a platform or to really be a voice for anything. Something that just is something that sort of naturally happened and kind of became, it was just a natural progression. So, and I talk about this a little bit in my book where I, after Ferguson had happened, and so of course, being a native Missourian, I lived in Virginia at the time, but I grew up in Missouri and then spent a little bit of my adult life in Missouri. I guess maybe I'm about half and half, half in Missouri and then half in other places at this point, but I probably won't ever live there again on this side of heaven. Um, mm-hmm. at least on this side of, on this side of Jesus's return. I mean, I say that never say, never say never because God can send me back. Right. But I kind of feel like Michael Corleone at this point, <laughs> like he pulled me out, like I'll come out and y'all keep pulling me back in. Right. Like I'm trying to not have Missouri pull me back in at this juncture in my life. But, you know, whenever all that was going on, I felt compelled to speak because I saw so much 
ignorance yeah. among people that I knew. Mm. I saw so much ignorance and racism, honestly, among people who I had grown up with, people who I had gone to church mm. with. I was their count, their counselor at youth camp. I was their kid's youth pastor, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And I just felt like compelled to speak because people were saying just su such horrid, awful mm. things. And so that sort of just sort of snowballed into, as I started speaking about race and racism on my personal Facebook page, that sort of snowballed into suddenly there were people just freaking out on me, people that were just, you know, I, I would post something and people would get mad. Like people, people would just, they would be angry because I was telling the truth. Right. And there just got to be a point whenever it was just like, yeah, you know, I'm tired of having to feel like I'm moderating these discussions because, you know, you got one group of people over here who get it and you got this other group of people over here who don't. Mm -hmm. And then I say something and then everybody just runs in and it's a whole. And so I got tired of that. So I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to start like a separate page mm -hmm. that I can say some of these things on. That doesn't mean that I'm going to stop saying them on my personal right. stuff. But like, I'm just going to kind of. So to kind of avoid some of these people who were just being willfully ignorant and, you know, some of those people saw themselves out. I was all my my thought process was and still is. I don't generally unfriend or block people because if it's like if you signed on to be friends with me, you're going to catch this work and until right. you see yourself out. Now, right. there's some, I have some I have some boundaries with that. Like if people are just going to be belligerent, if they're going to whatever. So there's been a few people who have been belligerent and disrespectful toward me that I've been like, no, nah, and I've shown them the door, like, no, thank right. you. We don't do that here. But just in general, like, you're going to catch, you're going to catch this work. So you're going to have to unfollow me. You're going to have to unfriend me. You're going to have to mute me, whatever it is that, that you do, you're going to have to do because you're going to catch this work. But I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to go ahead because just for myself, like, I'm tired. It was getting to the point where I couldn't say anything. Yeah. And without people showing their tail. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to create this page and then my and then people can opt into whether or not they want to hear these thoughts from me. And so they're still going to hear them on some occasions, but I can at least just put some of this stuff over here. And so I was thinking, OK, it'll be some of my friends and then some of their friends, because I I'd had where people would share, would ask me to make stuff public because they would, would want to share it on their page right. to their friends. So I figured it might be my friends and friends of friends and maybe friends of friends of friends. And that's as far as it'll go. I figured, you know, it'll probably be, I think, I think I had, you know, between it kind of vacillated between about 1500 to 2000 people who were friends with me on Facebook. And so I figured, you know, okay, I'll get about maybe about 400 people. That's friends, friends and friends of friends. And I'll just be out here and it'll be whatever. Well, that's not what ended up happening. <laughs> what ended up happening is that people started sharing what I was saying. And then more people started liking it. So suddenly it just, it stopped being mutuals. It stopped being that there were all these people who I had who were mutual friends. And it just sort of was like, wow, I don't know you. And I don't know how, I don't know who brought you here. And it's no, and it really has, it really has grown into something that I could not have ever anticipated or imagined even in my wildest dreams. And so I just have been kind of, I've just been kind of writing it out. But then within that, it's opened up so many opportunities to be able to speak truth, mm. to be able to share, to be able to help people to learn. But speaking out and finding your voice 
I think that my generation in particular, us millennials and then the Gen Z kids, I think too, like, or I guess kids and young adults because they're, they're not really kids. Many of them aren't kids anymore. But like, I think that our generation sometimes thinks that it has to be like, that if you're doing something and you're on the internet, then like somehow you've got to, you've got to have a platform and you've got to have like all these followers and you've got to like whatever. But that, but finding your voice and using your voice isn't about that. It's right. not about, it's not about building a platform. Like it's, if you are able to talk, the power of having one conversation mm, with somebody. Mm. And there are people that, there are people that, you know, that I could name now that I have, that, that, that had, that I had one conversation with. That that one conversation was life altering for me and made me realize some things that I needed to think differently about. And so then I thought mm. differently about them. And so then I've gone and have influenced other people to think differently about those things. And yeah. so the people that were influencing me weren't out here with, you know, platforms of tens of thousands of people. They were just somebody that, hey, we know each other, we're friends, there's mutual like and respect. And so something that I think that's very important is very important for us to get is that you don't need a bunch of followers on TikTok. You don't need a bunch of followers on Instagram. You don't need a bunch of followers on Facebook to make a difference. Now, I don't want to sound like one of those people that's like, well, you know, but you have a platform, so it's easy for you to say it doesn't matter. Right. Because I get like, I I, I guess I get that because I've been, you know, as a church person, I've been that person who's like, okay, but like, I feel called to lead, but you're telling me that like, this doesn't matter. But like, I feel called to lead. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting how you all baby boomers and Gen Xers are pastoring all the churches now and suddenly pastoring churches doesn't matter. (laughs) But like... Here you are living your dream and living your thing, living your thing and living out your calling. So now you can tell millennials and Gen Z now, oh, well, that well, it doesn't matter. Like platform doesn't matter. Like, like, oh, well, yeah, it doesn't matter because like, you know, you're you're the person on the stage with the microphone in your hands. Of course, it doesn't matter. So I don't want to be the person that's like sitting behind the mic and being like, oh, you know, your platform doesn't matter. Like if it's if it's something that you feel that you feel called to, like, absolutely, you know, like, like go for that you know, speak out, whatever. Because I think that some people just like make social justice into like this aesthetic and this lifestyle where it's just like, you're just, you know, you're an Instagram activist, you're a Twitter activist, you're a TikTok activist or whatever, but you're not actually, you're just, you're not doing anything. You're just on, you're just on TikTok. Yep. And you're just on TikTok regurgitating the same things that everybody else has, has already been done said. And you're just and you're mopping content from people and just wow. regurgitating it like like it's a like it's a new thought yep. and idea. So I really want for our generation to understand the tools that we have in our hands because I because the corollary to that is that a lot of people and people would tell me years ago, years and years ago now, you know, a decade ago, well, you know, social media isn't the place to have those types of conversations mm-hmm. and blah 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 blah. You know, you should really just you know that. And I'm like, well, if it's not the place to have the conversation, then where is? Right. Like, like, where is the Where is the venue? Because y'all aren't creating this. You you have people in church like be like, well, you don't know. Okay, but you're not creating the venue in your church. You're not having you're not creating the place in your church. You're not creating the place in your organization. So people are having to get on social media to talk about these things because they're because you won't address them in your context. So don't tell me that social media isn't the place for it whenever you're not making the place for it in the physical world. So we're having to get onto the internet world and talk about these yeah. things. And whenever we do that, you don't have power over what is said. Right. 
And so you don't like, like like people try to regulate and try to whatever because they want their power. But that's a whole other different sermon. But I think that we have to recognize the tools that are in our hands and utilize the tools that are in our hands. And whether that's 50 people, whether that's 50,000 people, whether that's 50 million people, being able to speak to the audience that we've been given and to steward that audience, to steward whatever platform whatever measure of platform that we've been given. But honestly, I think that what I, what I try to cultivate as a thought leader, as an advocate, mm-hmm. what something that I really just try to cultivate is, but just what I really try to, what I really try to cultivate is a sense of giving people things that they need to hear, whether or not they want to Come hear on. them, telling people what I think it's important that they need to hear and to hopefully help people to live and be more compassionate in the world. That's so good. I'm just kind of feasting on everything that you said. Something that stood out when you were talking was with Gen Zers and millennials finding their voice in social media, because when you said that people are like, well, social media is not the place. Well, where is the place? Because everybody's on social media. So that's like, mm-hmm. everybody, that's where everybody is and everybody's saying what they feel right. about whatever they feel, but it's when it's something that's opposed to what they feel that then it becomes like, that's not the place. So it's okay for we, for, mm-hmm. for there to be postings, you know, advocating for all these things. But when you talk about black bodies and justice, then it's an affront, but then also social social media is how black people have taken social justice to the streets because the way black people mm-hmm. engage on social media it's almost like it's this big global phone call where we, we're all on the phone yes. you know we think we get those envision your mom being on the phone while she's washing dishes and she's cooking dinner and we could hear everything mom was talking about and grandma was talking about but we knew we had to sit down and be quiet but still there was this engagement mm-hmm. that included us, but not included us. And yeah. this is what social media has become for black folks is that we all on the phone and we're co-signed or we're, all, it's mm-hmm. like a, it's like a virtual cookout. And it's been the place where we have been able to say, yes, I agree with that. Like, yes, that is the truth. Yes. That is my experience. Oh, I experienced that yesterday. Oh yeah. That happened to me. Oh, and then we see all of this. It breaks the isolation. It, it does break the isolation. And that in itself has been so empowering for us to know that we are not alone mm-hmm. because all of these stories and experiences have been pulled and pulled together in such a powerful way. And we have taken, you know, people talk about how, the, and I do agree that, yeah, there's this thing where people are just kind of regurgitating things and they are monopolizing and taking advantage of the platform. But then there's also this thing that's happening where people aren't getting arrested for killing folk. And then we get on social media and then all of a sudden there's an arrest. Like the woman that was recently killed by the white woman. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. That story. And it's just been a collective mourning, a collective grieving and lamenting and a collective, like we're going to get together and we're going to put this on blast and make them do something about it. And it's been such a powerful mechanism for us to come together and get things done because of the, there's been so much gatekeeping. And there were, there, there was really no way before social media that black people could write so many books and get 
so much yeah. information out and so much of our experience yeah. and so much of our stories. It was almost like, you know, I grew up reading a lot of black history, being exposed to a lot of black history, black books, black, you know, thought leaders and all of that. Mm -hmm. But it was like it was still I wasn't learning in school. You know, my teachers weren't talking yeah. about Langston mm -hmm. Hughes or Neil Hurston or, yeah. you know, they weren't mm -hmm. talking about that a black man wrote the count of money. Christo. They weren't talking about that. And mm -hmm. so yep. then when we get all these black people together on social media and then we share these experiences and then we kind of create our own table, it's been just so, so extremely powerful. And I feel like it's been a gift. I mean, it can be a curse in so many ways. Yeah. But I feel like it's been a gift. Yeah. You know? And to that point, briefly, because I know we, we have to wrap up here soon, for someone like me that grew up in the isolation of predominantly white, small, predominantly white town, I came of age as the internet was coming. So social media, the advent of social media was whenever I was in college. The internet has been invaluable to even some of my personal like identity formation, right? Where I have been able to have my own experience and the things that I've been seeing validated by other people. Mm. Because if I hadn't have had that, if I hadn't have had these windows out into the world and other black people's experiences, there are things that I wouldn't know. There, there would be things that I would still be learning. And so, yeah. you know, I think that one of the things is that one of the things that white supremacy does to us is isolate us from one another. It tends to isolate us from one another. We see that like the Middle Passage, what do they do? They drop people off who spoke the same language. They, they mixed us up on the boat so we couldn't, so we couldn't speak with people who we knew yeah. and then dropped us off in all these different places. And so we were separated from our kin. Yeah. And so the internet has been a way for us to bring our kin together, even across the African diaspora. We've been able to communicate with one another in ways that we hadn't previously been able to communicate with one another and to share ideas, to share culture, to realize just how alike and how similar we are. And so that's something that, that has been invaluable to organizing and everything else that we've been doing over you know, the last 15 years. First of all, thank you so much for just spending some time with us and sharing your story and talking about your book. Just give our listeners information on how they can support you, where to find your book, and anything you want them to know and want to share. Yeah, so definitely you can, you can get my book anywhere, Amazon, Books A Million, Bookshop. There are lots of different places that you can get it. It officially releases on June 20th. Let's see. You can also catch me on Patreon. You can get me on Facebook, TikTok. Just search for my name on TikTok. I'm the Allie Henny. On Instagram, I'm Allie Henny. Allie Henny on Facebook, and then on Twitter, I am the Armchair Calm. Nobody's on Twitter anymore, but I'm not even really on there. Right. But you might as well follow me. But the Armchair Calm, which is short for the Armchair Commentary, which is my personal blog that I don't post nearly enough to. And I'm also on Substack. So again, just look for my name. The name of my publication is A Shot of Henny. And I've just gotten that off the ground. So there are a lot of different places. I'm a lot of places and nowhere at once. Yeah. <laughs> and Henny is with two N's, H-E-N-N-Y. Yes. And Allie yep. is A-L-L-Y. So Allie, thank you yes, so much right. for spending time with us. We wish you nothing but the best. 
Can't wait for the book to come out. And we'll probably have you back at some point <laughs> because you're just wonderful. You're just so awesome. Yeah. I'm definitely a fan. So. Well, yes, well, I'm a fan also. Thank you so much for having me. All right, lady. You have a good one. Take care. Take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Peace. <laughs>